When the Apostle Paul was exhorting young Timothy pastor, he said to him, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Now, though that's always been a kind of, uh, for hunters, they know what in season and out of season is, or fishermen, although it has a different meaning in that text in Timothy in, the, in this. He said, Timothy, you need to preach all of the word of God the easy things that people are encouraged by and love to hear and the difficult things that push against our heart and are difficult to hear. I prefer to preach the in-season things. But today, uh, the assignment is to preach one of those out-of-season texts. One of the harder texts to understand in the Scripture, but not just in its understanding, one of the harder texts to deal with emotionally because the stakes are so high for all of us. You're going to see as we get into the text this morning in that I've entitled it, um, um, I forgot my title, no, I've entitled it, I've entitled it Salvation, um, uh, Opportunity Knocks for a While, Opportunity Knocks for a While. And that is such an emotional issue for all of us because in our relationships we know people who may be in violation of the text we're going to talk about today. It's highly possible that there may be some people in here this morning who are flirting with the violation of this text. And so, um, when we are talking about matters of the heart, in particular, matters of salvation, the overriding urgency of what we're talking about in this series in Hebrews is do not take your salvation for granted. Do not ever become lazy with respect to matters of your heart. And do not get sloppy about the things of eternity. And so uh, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, where we have been and continue to be for a while. The book of Hebrews, chapter 6, as we look at a very challenging section of Scripture. This is not going to be a light or humorous or entertaining sermon. And you're saying, so what's new? It is the case of the possibility of being very engaged in the experiences that accompany Christ and Christianity and falling away from it and finding it impossible to be brought back to your faith or to the faith. In other words, to have joined Team Judas. That's what this text is really about. So let's read it, and then let's, um, we'll make some commentary. Uh, I I think I want want to start back, though, in chapter 5, verse 11. And in the event that uh, we haven't been following along, or maybe you're new here today, we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews, and Uh, Keep in mind that uh, it's one long sermon and the preacher has already engaged us in the 
superiority of Jesus Christ and his salvation. And he has already introduced the possibilities that there are some people due to um, challenges, persecution in their lives, the, the possibility that they may be opting out of Christianity. They might be opting out of what they claim to now be engaged in, that they may be, decide to turn back to their old religion and not follow through. We've already encountered that. We've already heard the urgency of the preacher say, today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts. So this whole sermon is of great urgency to the new church, newer church in Rome likely, that was filled with a variety of people not dissimilar to our own church here today, who come from a variety of backgrounds and are under great stress. And what will they do? And so he's been making a case for Jesus and salvation through Jesus Christ. And that's when we arrive at the end of chapter 5 where he starts this way. We have much to say about this. About what? About shoring up your relationship with Christ. Making certain you belong to Christ Jesus. Making sure that you are of the faith. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling. All of that. We have much to say about this. But it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness or the right ways of God. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves. Hang on every word. Beloved, you've got to hang on every word. To distinguish good and evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. There's an important pause right in the center of this to remind everybody again that this is all about the sovereignty of God. This is, salvation is all about God's act in our lives. Then he says, it is impossible Circle that word. That's going to be the key word for us today. For those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, and subjecting him to public disgrace. Then he illustrates what he's talking about. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. Oh, so this is about the blessing of God or not getting the blessing of God. Well, let's keep reading. 
But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. This is not just talking about blessing. It's talking about something far more serious than that. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. So that means there is behavior that does not accompany salvation or salvation is not accompanied by this behavior. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. In order to make your hope sure, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. This is the word of God. Father, I don't have to tell you what you already know, and that is that this has been and continues to be one of the more difficult sections of Scripture to understand, yet it is not really difficult to understand. It is because we willfully and emotionally prefer other things. Father, I pray this morning that you will bless your word to our hearts and our lives. The seriousness of this section of Scripture cannot be ignored, must not be ignored, is not to be skipped over because it's so difficult, but is to be faced head on. And Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to uh, concentrate on the importance of what we are going to hear today from you. And I pray that you would open up our hearts, our ears, our eyes. I pray that we might not be distracted. I pray, O oh God, that we might resolve in our hearts to live more carefully before you, that we might recognize the seriousness of our salvation, the awesomeness of our salvation through Jesus Christ, and not have a, an attitude of dabbling, but might we be people who are fully in, O oh God, journeying deep into the heart of Christ, leaving no uh, question in our hearts, in the internal or external of our lives, about whose we are, I pray. For your great name's sake, and because of the cost of our salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray. Amen. I think at times we have wrongfully allowed our eternal security or our belief in our eternal security, which I fully believe in, in terms of the perseverance of the saints, uh, the weight of Scripture is that once you come to a life-transforming relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in Him as your Lord and Savior, He will preserve that faith in you 
until the end. That truth is recorded everywhere. In the book of Jude, for instance, in terms of our identity as believers in Jesus Christ, Jude, who is the brother of Jesus, addresses us. And he says, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, these three truths are realities of the identity of a true follower of Jesus Christ. A true disciple of Christ is called of God, loved by God, and kept by Jesus Christ. That's your resume. That's your identity. So I don't want to in any way present to you or create in you a sense of insecurity about the truth of salvation. But I believe that this text wants us to not take anything for granted. And the Lord himself has given this to us because we are to ensure that our faith is sound and solid and there is a responsibility that comes from our side of things to nourish our faith, to choose to grow deeper in Christ, that our salvation is a lifetime journey. There is a encounter with the living Christ that brings us into a relationship with him whereby we recognize that we are sinners and lost and going in the wrong direction and by repenting, turning from ourself and turning to the living Christ, we can have salvation, the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ until the day we die and he takes us into eternity. That is, the, the, that is biblical theology of salvation. I don't, I don't want to erode that in any possible way. But there are also the scriptures, biblical theology is, is rife with teaching that says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I can't begin humanly to explain how Jesus keeps us, but at the same time exhorts us to be, remain faithful and work on our relationship with him as two sides of our eternal security in Christ. All I can report is I believe it to be the truth. I believe that's exactly what the Bible teaches. And at the same time, We have wrongfully, I think, allowed that security theology to give us some sort of consolation that walking away from knowing Jesus is really not all that serious and that we can pop in and out. There are whole denominations that teach you can be saved and then lose your salvation. And quite honestly, this is one of the sole texts that they use for that theology in the face of a multitude of texts to the contrary. 
But this does mean something. And quite honestly, to be on, I'm not going to really spend time about whether eternal security or, or that kind of theology is, is, is true versus you can lose your salvation and regain your salvation, all that kind of stuff. At the very least, this text, even if we did believe one could lose one's salvation, tells us that you can't get it back. So it's a really serious matter no matter what camp you land on. This is one of those texts whereby the preacher actually grabs everybody by the throat and shakes us so that we're scared straight for a good thing, for a good reason. Matters of eternal salvation are the most important matters of our life. I think Piper has hit the nail on the head when he summarizes this section by saying this. There is a spiritual condition that makes repentance and salvation impossible. And this condition may look in many ways like salvation, but it isn't. Let me remind you again that the preacher is not preaching to people outside of the church. This sermon is not a sermon that Billy Graham, for instance, would use at an evangelistic crusade. This text is written to people sitting in a gathering of Christians. That's the context. So let's understand that when we talk about it's impossible if you fall away to be brought back to repentance, we are talking about a very serious possible situation in any given church gathering. And the emotion of this is high. I have wrestled this, I am so burdened by this text, it has been a weight on me to, to, uh, in a proportion that has been unusual. Because I, like you, have a personal vested interest in the answers to this text. I'm pretty certain there isn't anybody in, any of our, anybody in here who doesn't have somebody in their family who they're very deeply concerned about in terms of their heart condition. There may be people who are sitting in here this morning whose family are very deeply concerned about your heart situation. And so um, I talk to you with all kinds of personal stake in this. We use terminology like backsliding and we impose it into this text that either this is talking about backsliding or losing your salvation. I want to suggest to you that it's 
not really talking about either of those two things. It's talking about losing your opportunity for salvation. But it may look like one of those two things. Now let's, before we launch into this, you thought we had launched. We haven't. Uh, Pre-launch considerations are these. Let's understand about the genre of this particular text. The ladies are studying genre. Yes, wave at me. Come on, you are. I know you are Tuesdays. And I know you were just waiting for the day when I'd use the word genre. Or as D.A. Carson would say, Jean. Because he's from Quebec. And he knows better. But I say genre. This is not didactic. This section is not didactic. In other words, it is, is by genre exhortation. This is a preacher preaching a message. What, what is, what's the difference? Well, in exhortation, we have to understand the preacher's point so that we can give understanding to the latitude of the words that he uses to line up with that point. Because the words that he uses are used regularly in a variety of different ways. So the only way that we can interpret this correctly is to make sure we first of all understand that the genre is not didactic but is exhortation. Secondly, the situation for these people, let's make sure we understand, the situation is they're under persecution, there's difficulties, there's pressure, there's opposition, and there's popularity. Sometimes the gospel costs you friends. And maybe it's a cost too great for you. The preacher wants to talk to you about that. The preacher wants you to reconsider that. There's an obstruction here to their going on with Christ that the writer, the preacher, is identifying. In verse six, or chapter 6, verse 1, they are to leave something. Something's in the way of them fully embracing Jesus Christ. So he says to them, and a lot of people say, well, this, is just a, this text is just about an immaturity versus maturity. And at first glance, that would be kind of a, 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 yeah, a, a surface look at the text. But we have to look at a little bit deeper than, yes, this is just immaturity versus maturity in Christ, and so it's about blessing and not blessing, and this is not a big deal text. Frankly, the study book went in that direction, and for the first week, it's it and I are departing ways. This is far more serious than the study guide has portrayed. Far more serious. The obstruction states here, therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ. Now, what are these elementary teachings that they're to leave? And this word leave is to abandon, to say goodbye to, move on from. Now, look, at you are never, ever going to hear me say to you, I think we need to leave the basics about Jesus. I'm never going to say that to you. Not ever. I, I teach a class on Tuesdays about the foundations of our faith, about the basics of Jesus Christ. I will never, ever stand up and say, we need to move past the basics of Jesus Christ and get into the real meat of the Bible. That, that's not what this is saying. This preacher would not be saying that. So we have to ask the question, what are these elementary teachings that he's asking them to leave behind? The only way we can do that is to start to consider the audience. 
What's the title of the book? Don't be timid. I'm too far away to jump on you. Hebrews, which means the book is addressed to Hebrews. And who are Hebrews? Jews. He's addressing a majority Jewish audience. Does this have application for us? Yes, I'm going to weave application in for us. Of course it does. But the elementary teachings that he's telling his people to leave behind, he's telling Jews to leave something behind. If you don't pick this out of the text, you will likely go in all kinds of weird directions to try and interpret and understand this. What are these elementary teachings? So here we go. Here we go. You could lose, I could lose, well, not me, unless, and I'll tell you later, you or I could lose our opportunity for salvation if. There are three things I'm going to point out this morning, and they're not numbered. You know why they're not numbered? There are three ways of saying the same thing. Because I think that's what he's done here. Three ways of saying the same thing. So I'm not numbering them one, two, three. They're just bullet points. Now keep in mind, he's answering the question, what the sin of unbelief looks like. That's what he's been talking about contextually all the way up to here. The sin of unbelief. What does it look like? And who is in danger of violating the sin of unbelief? That's the issue here. The first is this. You may lose your opportunity for salvation if you remain intentionally immature. In fact, the word deliberate kind of jumps out at me. Chapter 10, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. If we deliberately... He is talking here, he's saying, you, in fact, though, by this time, you ought to be teachers, yet you need someone to teach you elementary truths of God's word all over again. You aren't, you don't even, you're not even acquainted with the teaching about the ways of God. You can't even distinguish good and evil. Does that sound like a Christian to you? It sounds like some people today who are masquerading as Christians... So this, is, this immaturity that we're talking about here is not baby Christian immaturity. It's religious immaturity. The very thing that Luther nailed the theses on the door all about 500 years ago. Religious immaturity versus True faith in Christ. So you're saying, well, what are these elementary obstructions? To me, they look like the very things of the gospel. They look like New Testament stuff. So let's look at them. 
not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. You know, sometimes people come to the place in their life where they say, you know what, my life sucks. I need to do something. I need to reform my life. I know what I'll do. I, I need to get back to church. That's what I need to do. I remember my mother used to take me to church. I need to go back to church, and I need to stop cussing. I, I, need, to, I need to take my job seriously. I need to do a better job at work. I need to do better with my relationships. And so there's an action of sort of religious personal reform. There's a type of repentance I'm going to turn from the way I am presently living to a new way of living that I myself am engineering. I get this all the time. People say, oh, I, you know what, I really need to get back to church. You don't need to get back to church. You need to come to know Jesus. That's what you need to do. And then back to church will not be an issue in your life. So he's talking here uh, to people who have a Jewish entrenched Commitment to religious ceremony of Judaism. I've been used to going to the synagogue, used to going to the temple. It's a type of religious reform, but not a reconciliation through Jesus Christ or to Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a surface faith in God here because let's face it, a Hebrew audience is not a pagan audience. A Hebrew audience is a God-fearing audience. A Hebrew audience is a Jehovah audience. They have faith in God. He's writing here and saying, faith in God is not enough because no one can come to the Father but by Jesus Christ. The elementary teachings of the older covenant were to move us to Messiah. And they're not moving to Messiah. They are remaining where they are. I get really nervous when people say, when all I ever hear people use in their lingo is the name God. It's not enough. Muslims use that language too. I need to hear Jesus. I need to hear you talk up Jesus. I don't really, I have no confidence in a person who tells me that, they, yeah, I have a relationship with God. Yeah, I know God. I'm into God. Right, really? The demons know God. Do you have a personal life-transforming relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? So they had faith in God. A type of religious reform, but not reconciliation to Jesus. It's incomplete say, well, wait a second, he talked about baptism here. Well, actually, the NIV says baptisms, and I'm not aware of more than one baptism. I mean, I'm aware of the Holy Spirit baptizing us into the body of Christ, and I'm aware of water baptism. I'm aware of multiples of baptisms. The word isn't baptisms. The word is washings. The word for baptism is baptizo. This word is baptismos. The New American Standard has it right when it calls it washings. And washings, that really narrows it down for us. We know that that's talking about the ceremonial washings of the Jewish system. So here they are still laboring with their washings. And the laying on of hands is when they laid their hand on the scapegoat and, and laid their hands symbolically that the scapegoat would take their sins and take it off into the wilderness. This is not... This is not the laying on of hands of Christians to one another. This is rather what they need to do is lay hold of Jesus Christ. They talk about the resurrection of the dead, 
But in Christ Jesus, we have resurrection to new life now. You're talking here about uh, eternal judgment. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. These are old, older testament references of which they are unwilling to move past. Now, when you know that, you realize that this places this whole context in people who have really not come to know Jesus Christ. They are religious. They are God-fearing. But God-fearing religious people are not enough. God-fearing, being religious is not enough to know Christ Jesus. Today's endangered species are the God-fearing, church-going people who, in this case, can't even distinguish the difference between good and evil. I get really nervous about people who claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But they struggle to welcome God's word in the matter of social and moral ethics. I can't tell you the number of times I've sat down with people and opened up this book with black and white writing, pointed to a text, and they've read it or noticed it and said, this is what Jesus teaches. you believe that? Yeah, I believe Jesus taught that. Are you going to do this? No. Why not? Because I don't want to. I don't... I don't think it's right, or I don't, I don't like what God has decided here because after all, I'm kinder and gentler than God. I'm more gracious than God in this matter. These people can't distinguish good from evil. So... He then moves from there to point out that God permitting, we will do so. In other words, salvation is of God. So he enters into this second section, verses 4 through 6, and says it is impossible. And by the way, that word impossible in the original is placed at the front of the sentence. For once, the NIV did it right. It's amazing. And the New American Standard is wrong. I I couldn't believe it. I was like, I had to sit and stare at the ceiling for probably half an hour in my office. I've got to rethink all of my, my prejudices. So really, this sentence starts off this way. Impossible. And it's not a wishy-washy word. It's the same word that's used in verse 18 of the same chapter when it says, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, it's that kind of impossible. Anybody here believe God can lie? No. It's impossible. It's also impossible for this kind of person to be brought back to repentance. That kind of impossible. Does the preacher have your attention? I hope so. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about this preacher. Does he have your attention? There's something that's impossible. 
that's very, very serious. You have been able to thoroughly consider, examine, and experience Jesus and walk away and back into the world. You could lose your opportunity for salvation if you have been able to thoroughly consider, examine, and experience Jesus and walk away and back to the world. Now, since I introduced the term backsliding because many of you are anxious about where this is going to take us, there's a difference between backsliding and apostasy or this section that we would call apostasy. Apostasy simply means defecting or denying the Lord, renouncing Christ. Backsliding is always characterized, first of all, it's only used a couple of places in the Bible, and they're not, those, where it's used, uh, it does not, is not used the way we use it. We use backsliding way too liberally, and way too, in my opinion, way too um, conciliatory. Walking away from the living Christ in any form is a very, very serious matter. Very serious. But if there is a thing like backsliding, it is this. It is falling into sin. A Christian falling into sin whereby they need to be rescued from that sin in the Galatians 6, 1 kind of way. This is a willful choice to walk away from Jesus. There's a difference. Later on, we're going to read in, in Hebrews chapter 12 where those who really belong to Christ, the family of God, will be disciplined. He won't let them go. So this is different. This is a willful walking away. Now, you said, but look at the language we're listening to here. Enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, Shared in the Holy Spirit, taste of the goodness of the Word of God, taste of the powers of the age to come. What? That's, that sounds like a Christian. Well, let's, let's unpack this a little bit because these five descriptions are very revealing. The word fall away here, parapipto, is to fail to follow through or is to fall from a lofty place. It's to have been placed somewhere in advantage, in an advantage, and then to fall from that place Choose to, to walk away from that place. Now, what's this lofty place? Well, let's, you, let's look at these words. Enlightened. A person has been enlightened. They become intellectually acquainted with Jesus Christ. They've come to know about him. They've been made aware of him. But they've never welcomed him or received him as Savior and Lord. This word enlightened is not salvation term terminology. We don't use this. We don't say that people were enlightened and they know Jesus. This word tasted, which is used for three different things. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted his good word. And they've tasted um, uh, uh, the powers of the coming age. This tasting is um, uh, uh, 
taste tested or sampled. I, I know of a guy who takes his family to Costco on Saturdays. Because if you know anything about Saturdays and Costco, there's all kinds of free samples. And so he invites his family to load up, guys, because this is your lunch. But they don't buy anything at Costco. They just swoop in and taste test and go home. This is a little bit about what we're talking about here. They're not clients of Costco. They're taste testers of Costco. These people are taste testing the heavenly gift, which is Jesus. They're taste testing the word of God. The word here is not logos for the whole, the counsel of God, but rather rima, which are pieces of God's word, God's parts of God's word. They are fascinated listeners to the word of God, but their hands are folded over their hearts like King Herod. Herod, you see, it tells us in the New Testament, loved to listen to John the Baptist preach. And then he beheaded him. He was a taste tester of the rima of God. And these power, uh, experience or tasting the powers of the age to come is being a, a, in, in the experience of the miraculous of God. In our congregation, if someone is gravely ill and the living God decides miraculously to heal that person in our midst, because that's the definition of the powers of the age to come, it's a break-in. When we pray for healing, we are praying literally for a break-in of the eschaton, a break-in of the age to come, where there is no more dying, no more sickness, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. We are asking God if he would be willing to advance the age to come into the present age in just this case. That's what it is. That's why it doesn't always, not everyone will be healed in this age because we will all be healed in the age to come. Sometimes, by the grace of God, he decides to miraculously break the age to come, a breaking of the age to come now. So in our midst, there can be people sitting here who are taste-testing the word of God. They are entertained by the preaching. They are taste-testing um, uh, not only the word of God, but they're taste-testing the uh, heavenly gift, Christ himself, and they're also potentially taste-testing because they're experiencing some of God's miraculous work. Say, so well, what about shared in the Holy Spirit? I'm glad you asked. The word here, shared, is... Um, Metakos, which is really, it's used in Luke 5, 7, for instance, of the fellow fishermen. They were associates. They were in the same place together. We would use this if we were getting in a boat together. We'd say we're metakos. We're associated with each other in the same place. Uh, and, and so the description is, these people have been where the Holy Spirit is, like here this morning, but our, this word that we normally would use is indwelt. If they, when we're talking about the real partaking of the Holy Spirit, we talk about being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So these people 
are people who have in every way had the advantage of experience the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his vast array of goodness and have decided that I have seen Jesus but I would prefer to walk away from him and go back to the world because I prefer the world. That's why in the text it says it is impossible for them to be brought back to repentance because they have they, they, to their loss they are crucifying Jesus Christ all over again and putting him up for public disgrace. Do you see what this picture is? This picture is the same as those who were present at the time of Jesus. And these Jews knew all about that 30 years later. About their own ancestors. About their own relatives. Who were there in the presence of Jesus. Witnessed his excellence, his words, break-ins of the age to come. The work of the Holy Spirit. And looked at him wagged their heads and said, crucify him. He's not important to me. I prefer the life that I have in this direction. There is the modern day possibility, according to this text, to do this very thing today. And it is impossible to be brought back to repentance because you have publicly shamed the living Christ. We don't talk a lot about the shame of God, the dishonoring of God. Our speaker last week did. The first thing that Adam and Eve did when they sinned against the living God was what? They hid, covered themselves because they were ashamed. They had dishonored the living God. We trifle with God. This text doesn't trifle with God anymore. It says you shame the living God and you may very well lose your opportunity for salvation because salvation is of the grace of the Lord. And if this wasn't enough, the final concluding thing he simply says is this. There are an illustration of two lands. The one, the both lands have been constantly rained on. You may lose your opportunity of salvation if you've been continually rained upon by life-giving truth and produce nothing useful to people or anything that should accompany salvation. Do you notice these two lands? They're both the same. They get to drink, in the, they get to drink the, the rain that God has sent, the blessings of God, the same opportunity and one has turned the blessing of God into useful product for those whom it has been farmed for. Notice that. Don't miss that. It's not really about themselves. It's about those around them. But the land, the other land that receives all of this rain neglects the field. Instead of taking that blessing... 
And that opportunity, in this case, from the truths of the older covenant and moving to Messiah and responding to the message and welcoming Messiah into their lives, they were satisfied to test him out with their religion and their rituals and their folded arms. And then one day when trouble came and persecution came, they walked away. This doesn't happen suddenly. This is about choices. When the blessing rain of God comes upon your life, it's a choice whether to respond to it or neglect it. And you might be sitting here this morning having for years neglected the rain of God and have produced nothing. We want each of you to show diligence. God's not unjust, verse 10. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. That's that's the behavior that accompanies salvation. You show your love for God by helping his people and continuing to help them. That's what accompanies true salvation. If you are this close to the action, and everybody in here this morning is, you better act on it. Get all in. Because there is a state of heart where repentance becomes impossible. I'm going to invite the musicians to come. As we conclude our service this morning, I want to simply put this out to your hearts. There may be somebody in, on your heart right now who you're concerned about. And obviously, we need to be absolutely concerned about people who are in our orb, who don't know the living Christ, or who seem to one time walk with him and are not. But importantly, in this room this morning, it is possible because apparently it was in the service before. It's possible that you might be this kind of person who's, who's possibly on the edge of walking away from all of this. You haven't softened your heart to the living Christ and, and driven your roots deep into truth. You're saying, well, wait a second, it says it's impossible to repent. That's what it says. But here's the truth about, about the Lord. If you can repent, repent. If you can repent, repent because it is God who allows you to repent. It's God who brings you to repentance. In the case of Esau, the, there's an example where Esau sold his birthright, the blessing of God, for a bowl of soup. He looked and gazed and, and was enlightened and and, and saw it and shared. He was in the, in the atmosphere of the blessing of God. And he looked at it and wagged his head and turned and said, No, I would rather have a bowl of soup than the blessing of God. And it says in this, this sermon later on that when he wanted repentance, he could not. He could not find a place of repentance, only of remorse and crying and tears. Why? 
because he wanted the blessing, but he didn't want the blesser. Too many of us want all of the the perks of salvation, to, to taste it, to experience it, to be part of it, but we don't want the living Christ to be Lord of our lives. And if you don't, you're in danger of walking away from the faith and never to find a place of repentance again. But today in this place is a place of repentance. And all I'm saying is if God puts it on your heart to repent, then repent. Turn from your religious thing, your, your, your personal reform, whatever you've been relying on, and finally, finally place your faith in the living Christ for salvation. And while we sing this morning, I'm going to be right down here at the front. If God is asking you to repent, then you come forward and do just that. Our Father and our God, we gather around your word because we believe you have a strong word for us. I thank you, O oh God, for the powerful work of the Holy Spirit to move in our lives. And I pray for this precious congregation that I love so deeply. O oh God, may we never, ever, ever take our salvation for granted. May we be confident in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and the confidence of your power to keep that which we've committed until the end. But, oh, Lord, I pray for those who might be here who've been playing church, flirting with the world, waffling back and forth, having a gaze of Jesus and then turning and walking to the world. Oh, Lord, forgive us and help us. And thank you, oh, Lord, for your grace and mercy that provides a place of repentance. And when you do, oh, God, may we move and act on that for your glory because you love us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. amen.